Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Arise, shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. Happy New Year to you again, and Merry Eighth Day of Christmas. These opening verses of Matthew chapter 2 that you just read are verses that the church traditionally, all over the world, reads on January 6th every year, which is coming up on Friday. But because we're free in Christ, we can read Matthew 2 any day that we want, can't we, church family? So we're having a little epiphany sermon today, and we're reading this famous, powerful story, which teaches us something profound about the powerful love of God, which is actively at work in the world, shining light into all nations. I want to just jump right in to the first two verses and invite you to join me in trying to wrap our minds around the dramatic tension of a scene which is fraught with all sorts of difficulties and all sorts of drama, as we're about to see. Look with me again at your text at verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, to help us appreciate what's happening in this story, I want to begin by asking and answering three questions. First question is, who are these wise men from the east mentioned in verse one? Now, the words wise men are translating a Greek word, magi, which really refers to pagan sages, pagan wise men who have expertise in things like interpreting dreams, 
astrology, telling fortunes, and practicing magic. In the book of Acts, this, this word and other related words are used a few times, and they're always used negatively to describe people who are sorcerers and false teachers. So, when we re- read wise men, we need to understand we're not talking about Solomon. We're not talking about uh, faithful Jews who are deeply rooted in the Jewish tradition. We're talking about probably pagan astrologers. We don't know exactly where they came from. We don't know exactly how many of them that they were. They probably came from Persia or Arabia or Babylon. And everything about this story portrays these men in a positive light. We don't know the full background, but somehow they saw a star and knew, I need to go to Jerusalem. We don't know if God gave them a vision. Very likely, these are people who encountered Jews in exile and who were exposed to some of the prophetic writings of Israel. So they probably knew something about the messianic expectations of God's people who were waiting for a great king of the Jews who was going to bring salvation to the world. But one way or another, they looked up into the sky and saw something that led them to Jerusalem. I want you to just ponder that for a second. These men are probably pagan astrologers. Now, in the Bible, God says several times, don't practice astrology. Okay, so if you're into horoscopes and that kind of thing, the Bible says, don't be into that anymore. Okay, we won't need to make choices about life and discern what's happening in the world based on scripturally informed wisdom, not looking for signs and symbols in the sky. And yet, as they're looking at the sky, God reveals himself to them. And they've got enough truth, enough knowledge of the truth that they're willing to risk everything to go on a long journey, hundreds of miles to come to Jerusalem to seek this king, to pay him honor, to worship him. It's amazing that they've come this far. And like many of us. They're a mixture. I mean, we call them the wise men. Our text translated magi with this word wise men. But they're a mixture of ignorance and of knowledge, of folly and of wisdom. They clearly don't understand the word that they're walking into. They rashly come into the presence of King Herod, saying some things that are going to stir up trouble in a way that's going to cost people their lives. They're not very well informed. And yet they're responding to the little bit of truth that they have with faith in a way that they're willing to risk everything to go on this journey. We don't know a lot about them, but we do know one thing about them, which is very important. God loves the Magi. That's why they're here. The most important truth about these Magi is that God loves them. What we're saying, church, is God loves pagans. God loves confused people living in darkness. Anybody glad that God loves confused people? God loves sincere spiritual seekers who are seriously spiritually confused. Anybody glad about that? God loves them. That's the most important thing about them. And by the way, God loves you. And that's the most important thing about you. God loves me. God loves all of our neighbors. God loves all of the sinners walking around confused on the face of the earth. And that's what this text is about. Who are the Magi we've been asking? Now let's ask, who is King Herod? The Magi show up in the court of King Herod. And this is the Herod whom history knows by the title Herod the Great. History calls him Herod the Great because he was a great administrator and a great diplomat. Herod was able to accomplish something that nobody else had been able to accomplish, which was to negotiate a kind of brokered peace between all the warring political and religious parties in Judea. And uh, because of his diplomacy and and his ruthlessness, frankly, um, and his administrative ability, he was able to bring a, a era of relative stability and peace and prosperity to a very troubled region. He also uh, built a lot of stuff. He built many public works. He oversaw the building of of, uh, walls and temples and 
palaces and all kinds of stuff, some of which you can still see if you go to the Holy Land. So he's called Herod the Great. This is not the same Herod we'll encounter later in the Gospels. This is not the Herod that kills John the Baptist. This is not the Herod who colludes with Pilate and participates in the execution of Jesus. Those guys are called Herod because they're part of his dynasty because he's Herod the Great. But the thing about Herod the Great is, though he is politically and administratively and diplomatically somewhat gifted, he is not great morally or spiritually. History testifies what our text confirms, that this man is a power-hungry man. This man is a suspicious man. This man is a paranoid man. He's, he's always concerned about people plotting to take his power. And he will ruthlessly protect his own power if he needs to. He oversaw the execution of multiple of his children and his wife, such that a Roman historian later reported that the emperor said it's safer to be Herod's cow than to be his child. And yet the Roman emperor liked him because he was good at politics. He knew how to keep the peace and how to administrate So here's an individual who looks wise to the world, but he's ruthless and he loves only himself. He's shrewd and he's intelligent, but he's morally blind. And now the magi, the confused, misguided, but sincere wise men from the east are coming and they're in the court of Herod. We've asked who are the magi and who is Herod, but we need to ask one more question, which is the most important question, which is what is God up to in this story? What's God doing? And the answer is that God is fulfilling ancient prophecy by lovingly drawing pagan nations to himself. God is doing this in a way that puts on display his great power and his great love. How can we see the power of God in this text? Well, God is in charge of the sky. He's in charge of the stars. Many scholars, astronomers, historians, various people have speculated about what was the star that the Magi saw. Was it a comet? Was it a supernova? Was it a supernatural event of some sort? And we don't really know. I think it's probably a supernatural event because of what's said later in the text. That the star led them right to the place they needed to go in Bethlehem, which is not what stars usually do. But at any rate, there's shiny stuff happening in the sky. Because God is in control. Everybody say, God is in control. He reigns over the heavens and he reigns over the earth. And he's doing stuff in the sky, whether it's through his long ago planned providential ordering of the stars combined with something we don't understand about their astrological books, or if it's a supernatural thing that he just placed in the sky that's not like a normal star. He's doing stuff in the sky in a way that is fulfilling ancient prophecies that came from Seven, eight hundred years before this, God is in control. But the story doesn't just tell us God's power. It it shows us God's great love. Think about the fact that the Magi are pagan astrologers, spiritually confused. They have been formed by a spiritually blind culture. And yet God is willing to condescend to meet them where they are in a way that makes sense to them. They're looking in the wrong places, but God is willing to show up in the wrong places to find people who are lost. Isn't God good? Anybody ever been in the wrong place and God showed up to find you there? This is what God's love is like. Moreover, God is orchestrating a confrontation with Herod, which shows us something about the nature of God's kingdom because it's drawing a sharp contrast between Herod, called king of the Jews, and Jesus, the true king of the Jews and king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus, whom the wise men have come to worship, is a very different kind of king than Herod, is he not? He's a king who rules by love, not by the ruthless worldly wisdom that knows how to get its own way, but a king who rules by the true wisdom of God, a king who rules with compassion. When Herod feels threatened, he stops his enemies by killing them. And he's willing to risk killing a few friends in order to make sure he's got all of his enemies. But when Jesus is threatened, though he has all the powers of heaven at his disposal, 
The way he overcomes evil is by freely laying down his life to redeem his enemies. Isn't God good? It's a different kind of kingdom. Jesus is the king who reigns by dying on the cross for our sins and rising victoriously from the grave. Now, we've answered the questions. Who are the Magi? Who is Herod? And what is God up to in this story? Which puts us in a position to be able to appreciate everything else that's going on in this text, in this little story. I'm going to walk through and touch some of the high points very quickly. In verse 3, we read, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is troubled because he does not like to hear about anybody who might threaten his power. The news of a new king is not good news to him. All of Jerusalem is troubled because they know that when Herod feels threatened, he usually starts killing people. Everybody but the Magi understands that them coming and saying what they're saying is about to provoke a violent reaction, which it in fact does. Verses 4 through 6 tell us that Herod consults with the religious leaders. He's on a quest to find out where is this baby to be born. And interesting. I mean, Herod hears from the Magi, and then he goes to the Bible experts to say, where did the Bible say God was going to send his special king? Because he wants to kill him. Now, that's bold. He wants to search out the scriptures to figure out where God said he was going to send the Messiah so he could kill this guy. And the religious leaders know. They've studied their Bible, and they already were reading Micah chapter 5 as a messianic prophecy, and they know God's going to raise up a mighty king from little Bethlehem, which was not far away, less than 10 miles away from Jerusalem. So they quote the prophet and they go tell Herod. Notice here that we're not only seeing political corruption here, but we're also seeing sad religious corruption because the chief priests and the scribes know exactly what's going on. They know Herod doesn't want to worship his rival. The chief priests and the scribes, though, Tell Herod what the information he's looking for. They do not travel to Bethlehem. Think about the fact that the Magi came hundreds of miles to find the king. And the chief priests and scribes of Israel don't walk five to ten miles to Bethlehem. Nor do they intervene in any way to try and protect the child from Herod. It seems that. The religious leadership here is more concerned about protecting its own privileged political status than doing the will of God. There's political corruption and religious corruption here. And in verses 7 through 8, we see Herod trying to lay a trap. He's trapped and killed a lot of people to protect his power. This is something that comes naturally to him. And the trap that he lays is by trying to deceive the Magi, who are the only people who don't understand what's going on with Herod. And he tells them, when you find the baby, come back to me so I can worship him. Um, but, of course, he really wants to kill him. And the trap could have worked, except for you can't trap God. God knows what's going on. And so in verse 12, we read that God sends a dream to tell the Magi, and the Magi obey the Lord. They go back to their homes a different way, so that the life of Jesus Christ is preserved, and, and he can fulfill his vocation to save the world. But if you read the rest of Matthew chapter 2, you find out that um, Herod's rage is triggered when he figures out what's happening and he does go kill innocent people, which is a reminder to us that when the kingdom of God is advancing, the kingdom of darkness always pushes back. There's always spiritual warfare. But I want to ask you to draw, give your attention more closely with me to verses 9 through 11. Let's just walk through those for a moment because there's some beautiful stuff here. Verse 9 says, After listening to the king, they, the magi, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This is God's powerful love in action. God is willing to go very far and to do radical, dramatic things to find lost people and bring them to the presence of Jesus. Then in verse 10, it says, when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Everybody say great joy. I want to ask you to circle those words or underline them in your Bible, in your bulletin, wherever you're taking notes. Great joy. Great joy. Even in the midst of darkness, there is great joy. I like what Jared was saying to us a second ago during the prayer time. To be a Christian is to know the God who comes to us in our darkness 
and loves us so that we don't have to ignore the brokenness of the world. We can face it, but we can know that God is walking with us through it and he's going to lead us out of it so that even in the midst of all this corruption, we can have joy. And what's happening right here is a fulfillment of what the Old Testament had long said that God's powerful love was not only going to redeem and bring spiritual renewal to his people, Israel, but it was going to bring hope and joy to all the nations of the world. Like we read about in Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for God judges the people with equity and guides the nations upon the earth. Then we read in verse 11 that the Magi go into the house. They saw the child Jesus with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. This is an awesome scene. It's an awesome scene. This is the epiphany moment. Everybody say epiphany. The word epiphany means manifestation or appearance. And what Christians traditionally celebrate on January 6th, the day after the 12th day of Christmas, is this moment, which is called Epiphany, because this is the first moment in which God manifests the identity of the Messiah to the Gentile nations. Which is to say, this is the moment in which we see God shining light, not only into Israel, but to the pagan Gentiles. Reminding us that God has always been and continues to be in the business of finding people in their darkness and in their ignorance and of loving them and bringing them home. That's what this moment is about. The wise men see Jesus and they fall down before him and they worship him. Now, they almost certainly don't really fully understand what they're doing here. From their background, they're probably used to paying great reverence to powerful kings, especially if they've been foretold by prophecies and their birth has been announced by stars in the sky. But Matthew has already told us in Matthew chapter 1 that this baby is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So without fully understanding it, what's happening here is that God himself, God the Son, begotten of his father before all ages, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, has become flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, this little baby. And God has gone to great lengths to bring sincerely, spiritually seeking, but spiritually confused pagans from a long way to fall down before the God-man and worship him. It's an awesome moment. And it's the beginning of, of something glorious that God is still doing throughout the world. And then the last part of the verse says that they, as part of worshiping him, they bring him gifts. It says, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. One of the interesting interesting things about studying Matthew's gospel is he doesn't tend to give a lot of really specific historical details. And if he does tell us really specific, detailed historical facts. He's usually doing it because he wants to make a theological point. And that's exactly what's happening right here. And the point that he's making is that the great prophecy of Isaiah 60 is being fulfilled. That's what's in your bulletin. It says Isaiah 6, but that's a typo, y'all. It's Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6. And Isaiah 60 is a prophecy uh, describing a moment in which God is going to act in a new way. The world has been covered with thick darkness, evil, confusion, ignorance, spiritual blindness, sin. And God is going to shine a light. First, he's going to shine it on his people, Israel, bringing spiritual revival and renewal to them so that they will worship the true Lord and walk in his ways of righteousness and justice. But that spiritual renewal is going to happen in such a way that the nations will be drawn to the light. And it talks about powerful nations, even powerful kings coming to worship the Lord and to come to his presence and to pay tribute to him. And Isaiah chapter 60, verse six specifically says that they're going to come. The nations are going to come bringing frankincense and gold. 
And Matthew wants to point out, hey, when God brought the nations, it just so happens that they brought frankincense and gold. And he's signaling for us that this moment of the Magi is the beginning of a new thing that God is doing. And the, the, the consummation of this new thing happens when Jesus returns with glory and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth so that all the cultures and all the ethnic groups of the world who have been redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ will come into his presence and consecrate their cultural treasures to his glory. This is the beginning of that movement of God. Now, I rushed through that kind of fast to talk about this text. Because I want to take a few minutes today to really ponder the question, what does this have to do with us? We take time right after Christmas every year to have an epiphany sermon because it's really good to start every year remembering that God's infinite power and infinite love are focused on shining light to all nations to bring hope and healing to people who are in darkness and to draw the nations to himself so that we can remember our focus as a people. What has God called us to be and to do? What is our role? What is our vocation, church? The story we just read, I have said, is the beginning of something new, a new era in which God is acting in a new and powerful way to draw the nations to himself. This is the beginning of God's purpose to shine the light to all nations. That, that has always been his purpose, but it's breaking forth in a new way here. But that purpose is still unfolding And today, God is still free to draw people to himself however he wants to. God can do whatever he wants, including signs and wonders in the sky if God wants to. But we need to attend carefully to the fact that Jesus says that is not the primary way that he's going to shine light into the nations. This is Matthew chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, you can flick three chapters to the right. And what does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says to his disciples, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Everybody say, let it shine. Let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father Who is in heaven. And then if you keep flipping to the right, if you go all the way to the end of Matthew's gospel, many of you know the gospel ends with what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And what Jesus says is all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Everybody say go. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I command you and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The light is the light of Jesus. Jesus is with his church. Therefore, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. What we're trying to say here is our identity, church family. Is that God's people are sinners who have recognized their sinners and put their faith in Jesus and been forgiven. And now the children of God. And what he says about you and what he says about me is, you are the light of the world. That's our identity. That may be hard for us to believe. Because sometimes we feel just as messed up as the rest of the world. Anybody feel a little messed up? I won't make you answer that out loud. (laughs) But I do. I was thinking about the fact that the Magi are halfway wise, halfway foolish. And I was just reflecting on the fact that that's my good days. On my bad days, I'm just all foolish, right? The good news of this text is that God has grace and light and love for people that are halfway wise and halfway foolish. And God can not only draw them to himself, but use them for his great glory. You are the light of the world, church. Jesus is saying, that's your identity. And then he's saying, walk in your calling. You are the people who, though you may be hurting and though you may be battling your sin, you have been redeemed by the love of God. You have been forgiven by the grace of God if you've trusted Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, trust him today. And then all that I'm saying will be true for you. 
To trust in Jesus is to be the redeemed, forgiven, accepted, justified, beloved children of God for whom there is no condemnation. What we have to look forward to is everlasting joy for unending ages in the presence of God in a renewed creation. We've got everything to be happy and excited about, church. The church triumphant already exists in the presence of Jesus. But theologians make a distinction between the church triumphant and the church militant. That's us. Everybody say church militant. What does that mean? It means here on earth, we, we are already more than conquerors in Christ. And we're looking forward to joining with the church triumphant and worshiping Jesus in a, in a new creation forever. But in the middle or right now, we're in the middle of a war. There's a spiritual battle going on. And we're not talking about a war that's fought with guns and swords. That's how Herod fights. We're talking about a war between light and darkness, between hatred and love, between evil and goodness. We're talking about the war that only Jesus can win, and he's calling us to fight in his way. So the simple message here is, church, let's not hide under a basket. Let's not hide under a basket. And let's be honest, church, the things that might make us most tempted to hide under a basket are good gifts of God. Who here loves the fellowship of the saints. Y'all enjoy community? Y'all enjoy hanging out together? It's a good gift of God. It's comforting and, and joyful to be together. But that good gift of God could become a basket that we hide under. If we spend all of our time enjoying the fellowship of the saints. This building is awesome. Don't you love this beautiful building that God gave us? Hey, everybody in Redemption Church who used to be Rancho Village Baptist Church, thanks for taking care of this building for decades and for building it. <laughs> And everybody that came from Christ Community Church, aren't you glad that we're not setting up chairs in a gym every week? (laughs) Glory to God. This building is awesome. It's a great resource. But God's gift, even this building, heaven forbid that it would become a basket that we hide the light under. Do you hear what I'm saying, church? Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. The church of Jesus Christ is a going church. The church of Jesus Christ is a going church. We're an apostolic church, which means not only that we're based on the teaching of the apostles, but it also means that we're a sent church. We were sent right here. We're a missionary church. To be a missionary is to be sent to a place bearing the good news of the gospel. Friends, we are in one of the pagan nations, okay? We're a long way from Jerusalem. And we are sent here to bear witness to Christ, an obedient church is a going church, which means Redemption Church always needs to be about taking church to the people. I want you to think about that phrase. Everybody say, taking church to the people. Listen, the church is not the building. The church is us. The church is the people of God. The church is everybody who's trusted in Jesus Christ, has been redeemed and filled with his Holy Spirit. And what we want to be about is taking the church, the light of Christ, to people where they are, to love people at their point of need and to share the good news of Jesus. Now, I feel compelled this this morning to celebrate what God is already doing in our church and through our people, locally and globally, but to celebrate in a way that is at the same time praying, Holy Spirit, do a new thing this year. Holy Spirit, do a new thing this year. What if we just all prayed that today? Do you want to see the Spirit of God do something new and fresh and powerful this year? Holy Spirit, do a new thing this year. I'm going to give you a spoiler. At the end of this sermon, I'm going to ask you if you're willing to pray a prayer that really does come from Isaiah 6. What's in your bulletin, Isaiah 60. But you remember that prayer of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where he said, Here am I, send me. I'm going to ask us all if we're willing to say that to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit today. Here am I, send me. Which could mean for some of us relocating, going to another nation. But for many of us, it may involve just saying, God, take me out of the basket. God, I want to be available for what you're doing in this community. So how is it already happening? Can we celebrate what God's doing among us, church? He's already shining his light locally through our church in a variety of ways. One of the ways he's doing it is just through the organic witness of faithful saints like so many of you. You have neighbors. You have people who live next to you. If you go to school or you go to work, you've got people that you're in proximity with. You have family members. You have hobbies. Your kids are on a sports team. 
you're organically connected to all kinds of people all the time. And what I love about this church is so many of you are intentionally building relationships with those people. You're identifying as a Christian in a way that opens doors for spiritual conversations. You're praying for those people regularly by name. You're, you're uh, looking for opportunities to share your testimony with those folks. You're inviting them to come fellowship with other Christians. You're inviting them to church events where they can get the opportunity to hear the gospel. And as you're doing that, light is shining out in the community. That's a faithful witness. And my prayer is that for all of us who have been providentially, strategically planted, where we have organic spheres of relationship and influence, that this year God's going to open our eyes to see the people around us in a new way and open our hearts and fill them with bold love to bear witness to Christ. You want more of that, church? We also need to recognize that there's 120,000 people in South Oklahoma City, just in our little quadrant, southwest side. And they're living in all sorts of cultural and ethnic and economic and neighborhood subgroups such that most of our neighbors, even if we're super intentional, even if we've moved into the south side or if we grew up in the south side and we're very intentional about being missionally engaged, most of our neighbors our neighbors are not ever going to naturally be in that place of organic connection with you. Which means we also need to think like missionaries about intentional strategies for how we corporately can collectively can work together to go to places where there's a lot of people that are not reached and do not have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I want you to understand Oklahoma City is a global city. I know sometimes in Oklahoma we got a little chip on our shoulder. We feel like a little small like we're like Texas's little brother or something like that, right? But, hey, we, we, it's not about worldly greatness, but we do happen to be the 25th largest city in America, okay? And this is a global city, and there are dozens of languages spoken here. And here's a hard reality. In South Oklahoma City, where we live, many of the places, apartment complexes and schools and so on, that we're going to share the gospel are places that are like 95, 96, 97% unchurched, unreached, unengaged with the gospel, which is similar to what you will find in many neighborhoods throughout the Middle East and many of the places that we talk about as unreached people groups. I know that there's billboards that say things about Jesus everywhere, but did you get saved driving past that billboard? The text did not say the billboard is the light of the world, okay? I'm not trying to complain about the billboard. I'm sure somebody got saved driving past that billboard. Thank God for the billboard. But I'm just trying to say, friends, what... what is going to help our neighbors to know Christ, is if people who know Christ go to our neighbors. You hear what I'm saying? Everybody say, taking church to the people. So let's celebrate what's already happening here. Man, I love our college ministry team. Gavin Hart is like a fireball of endless energy, like the Energizer Bunny or something like that. And he's got this great team of, who I don't know who's on the team, Santos and Chris and Zach Padgett and a bunch of people. And they are not only discipling college students in our church, but they are getting after year after year, semester after semester, going onto college campuses, especially Rose State, but also OCCC and various other places, and building relationships and sharing the Gospels. Church, can we pray for them? Can we celebrate them? Can we show up to support and shine the light? Yes. I'm excited about Celebrate Recovery this year. Y'all excited about that? Thank God. Pray for Morgan Curry. Pray for... Marissa, pray for Sheila, pray for, uh, who's helping? Will, Isaac, did I say everybody? I'm, what? Richard, okay, pray for Richard. Thank God for that team that started, starting Celebrate Recovery. Hey, that's gonna be a great resource of hope and healing for so many within our congregation. But one of the great things about that program is over time it can be a great witness to people who are needing help with recovery in their lives and they're gonna come to know Jesus through it. Church, can we pray for them? Can we support them? Can we celebrate them? Guys, our school ministry team is awesome. I love Chauncey. Everybody loves Chauncey. Chauncey's awesome. He's leading the charge. I'm thankful for Suparsh and Clarissa. I forget who all is on that team. Um, but that team is working really hard. And there is a wide open door for gospel ministry at, at Roosevelt Middle School, at Southeast High School, right around us in our neighborhood. Not only to serve in ways that are improving academic performance and making a big difference for flourishing for people, but for evangelism. Dozens of kids gathering up weekly for Bible study and discipleship. And a lot of us have other jobs that we got to do during school hours. But if you're free, they could really use your help to show up and help them shine a light into those schools. So, church, can we pray for them? Can we celebrate them? Can we support them? 
I've been thinking this week a lot about our neighborhood ministry team, which every week is teaching the word of God in, I think, eight apartment complexes, plus leading our youth after school program here. And guys, that is beautiful work and it's hard work. Uh, sometimes it's really fun and really exciting and really encouraging. But if you're a part of that team, can you testify that sometimes it gets a little difficult? Sometimes you build up a group, group and see a bunch of people come to know the Lord and then they all move out or they all get evicted. Um, or they get new management that doesn't renew Section 8 and all of a sudden you're starting over. Sometimes you've got a person of peace and a place to meet and then all of a sudden that person moves away uh, in November. And then it's December and January and you're walking around outside trying to share the gospel and build relationships, which is very difficult. It can be hard, discouraging, difficult work, but I just want to celebrate every week. I just wrote it down right here. Uh, Briar Glen Apartments. Every Wednesday, the Woodruff family and the Domasic families out there sharing the gospel. Brock Creek Apartments on Thursdays, Ian and Kent and Vivian and Chauncey are out there. Hillcrest Apartments on Wednesdays, the A-Bears and the Bugs are out there. Oak Creek Apartments on Wednesdays, my family and Jeff Garris and Brooke, who came to know Jesus out there and got baptized, and now she's helping teach the kids. Can't we just clap for God? Isn't God awesome? Uh, Rosemont Apartments. Tuesdays, the Troianos are holding it down there. I don't know if I saw him. Matthew Troiano has been holding it down there for a long time. Let's just clap to encourage him, too. He's been so faithful at those places, at that place. Will Rogers Courts, if you haven't been out there, guys, that's a huge uh, project housing uh, complex. It's really big. There's a lot of people, and the team used to have a lot more people on it, and the team has shrunk. Right now, it's Chris and Justin, and they need our help. There's a wide open door for ministry, but the labors are short and work schedules are difficult. So we need to support them. Thank you guys for your faithfulness. Magnolia Village apartment complexes on Thursdays. My family's out there. Remington on Wednesdays. Jerry's been going out there on their own and just making disciples. Um, I'm so thankful to God for that and for CAP, which is happening twice a week now, discipling kids in our community. And here's what I, I want to say. To be a part of any of these outreach teams I've mentioned, and there's more, but I've already been preaching for too long. So I'm going to keep going. But to be a part of any of these teams is simply to say to Jesus, thank you for shining your love into my heart. Shine through me. Shine through me. I want to be available. I want to be present. I don't want to just be where it's comfortable. I want to do what you did, which is to go to a place that is uncomfortable and a place that is difficult and make myself available to say, shine through me. And, and you need to understand it's, it's a missionary calling, especially what I just mentioned with all those guys doing an apartment ministry. It's a missionary calling, which means it me, it's embracing a lifestyle of joyful discomfort and self-giving love. Joyful discomfort and self-giving love. Now, we, we can be real here, church. We don't want to over-exaggerate our suffering for Jesus, right? Some Christians from an actual persecuted are going to show up and look at us funny if we start talking about how we're suffering for Jesus. But I, I also don't want to uh, give you false advertising. If you were to join one of these teams and help, here's what probably would not happen. You would show up and a bunch of people would say, I was waiting for you to show up and teach me about Jesus. And they would all assemble themselves. You would open up the word of God and they would all believe and it would begin multiplying quickly and it would all be beautiful. That probably wouldn't happen. Has anybody seen that happen? Me neither. OK, <laughs> I was I was about to celebrate if somebody had what usually happens is you go out there and you work hard for a long time and you build some relationships. And it's, it's like those stories your parents used to tell you. It's four steps forward, three steps back. Right. It's challenging. It can be discouraging. I'm going to be real. You're probably going to experience secondary trauma. Friends, I, if I can just get real for a second, man, I, I've buried a bunch of people from Oak Creek who have come to know the Lord and then die. I've experienced I've. Uh, held hands and grieved with and prayed with mom who just got their um, kid murdered. I've grieved with kids who were being raised by an uncle who just got in prison for murdering somebody. I've seen people come to know the Lord and start thriving and walking in their faith and they relapse and everything falls apart. It can be very discouraging and difficult. I just want to be realistic about what we're talking about here. But why do we keep doing it? We do it, first of all, because Jesus is worthy. Why else do we do it? Because these people are awesome and God loves these people. Why else do we do it? Because we're going to live forever in the new creation with Jesus. But right now we're the church militant. We're the light of the world. And if we don't show up, who's going to? That's why we keep showing up. It's also because 
I'll just be real with you. That hard, slow, difficult work in those apartments. Jared leads that team, by the way. We need to support Jared. That's the way that we've seen the most people come to know Christ over the last 12 years in South Oklahoma City. I was looking around this room and thinking, Henry, I think it was 10 years ago at Oak Creek Apartments where I prayed with you and you gave your life to Jesus. Wasn't that awesome? Brooke, a little recently, uh, more, more recently, she was baptized right here. We just prayed for her or celebrated her. Um, in this room, there's probably five or six people. I'm not going to name everybody who came to know the Lord through those apartment ministries. There were more here uh, earlier this morning, like three o'clock in the morning at the end of the party. <laughs> there were some youth here who came to know the Lord through our apartment ministry. Um, oh, th- th- you showed up in the back. OK, there you are. I see some of you who started coming to apartment Bible study when y'all are what, like four or five years old. And now they're young men of God going hard after Jesus. There's other people in this room that didn't get reached through the apartment ministry, but they got reached because somebody that got reached through the apartment ministry reached them. What I'm trying to say is God is saving people. We just need to be faithful. We just need to be faithful. Now, I was going to talk about globally, but we don't have time for all that now. Church, we've got people that we've sent in the Arabian Peninsula and Wales. We've got church members that are in North Africa. We sent a team of 15 people to Norman. We're talking about local and global working together. And if, if God is stirring something, maybe the Holy Spirit is stirring something right now in your heart to go to an unreached people group in a part of the world like where these Magi lived. Where people are living in spiritual darkness and confused. We want to train you and we want to send you. We're looking for spiritually hungry people of very high character who are already fruitfully making disciples here. We learn to cross the street to make disciples here in preparation to learn to cross the world and make disciples. Those go together. So it's Epiphany Church. It's a new year and God is shining his light. And I want to end on this note. Our mission, church, Redemption Church, is not sustained by our power and our love. Aren't you glad? Our mission is not sustained by our power or our love. We are just as needy as the people that we're ministering to. We need God's grace every day. We're so thankful Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We need his forgiveness and his grace every day. We, we grow faint. We grow weary. We grow weak and wait for the Lord. Our mission is not sustained by our power and our love. It's sustained by the infinite power and love of the God who we just read about in this story, who moved the stars to get a few guys from Persia. Infinite power, infinite love. Our mission is the love of God shining through us as we joyfully surrender to the loving presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's really the tone of Isaiah 60. That first passage in your bulletin. What does it say to the people of God? Arise, shine, for your light has come. That's the light of Jesus. And the glory of the Lord has risen on you. Because God has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. We can go with freedom and with boldness and with joy. I want to invite you to stand with me. And in a, in a just a moment, the worship team is going to come up and lead us in a, in a song. I want to respond to God's word by worshiping him. But first, I want to invite you to do what I told you I was going to invite you to do. I want to invite you to pray. If you would be willing, put your hands out just in a posture of surrender. During our benediction, we put our hands like this usually and say this is a posture of receiving, receiving blessing from God. Notice that the posture of surrender and the posture of receiving are the same posture. And I want to just ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to do a renewing work in your heart. I have no idea what calling God has on your life. Many of you are are serving in ministries already that I didn't name today. We can't name all the wonderful things that everybody's doing in this room. And many of you, God may have a different plan than some of the vision I just talked about. But all of us are sent. And I just want to encourage you as we walk into 2023 to have a posture like what we see in Jesus, not my will, but yours to his father posture like we, what we see in Mary, but it be to me according to your word.
in a posture like what we see in Isaiah. Here am I, send me a posture of surrender and willingness and openness to whatever new adventures God might call us on this year. So I'm just going to be quiet for a moment. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and we're just going to pray, each of us asking the Holy Spirit to minister to us. And then I'm going to pray the words of Isaiah 6. And here be my encouragement. Don't pray it unless you mean it. But if you want to today surrender again, open yourself again, not to a vision of Redemption Church, but to the calling of God, whatever it might be in your life. And I'm going to ask you to repeat those words after me. Here am I. Send me. Let's, let's be silent in the presence of the Lord together first for a few moments. If you're willing, I'll just invite you to repeat after me these words from Isaiah as a prayer to the Lord. Here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. Lord God, as a people, we want to first thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for pursuing us, for finding us in dark places. When we were looking where we shouldn't have looked and you came to us. We thank you for Jesus, for his death and resurrection. Lord, I want to pray for anybody here who came seeking you today that doesn't already know you, that today would be the day of salvation, of trusting in Jesus, surrendering to him. And Lord, for all of us, whether our faith is brand new or whether it's been seasoned by decades of discipleship, I ask for a renewing work of your Holy Spirit this year going into 2023. And we say, Here we are, Lord. Send us. Here we are, Lord. Let your light shine in us. Let your light shine through us for your glory. Lord, we want to see thousands of our neighbors come to know you. We want to see disciples raised up. Lord, we're not focused on church growth or multiplying our vision. We want to see disciples of Jesus equipped and unleashed in the world. So we pray, come with power. Come with power to our community. Come with healing love. In Jesus' name.